Few people would have the courage to leave a very secure future in academia for a very uncertain life behind the bar. Our guest did, and he has never looked back. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. Are you crazy for Thomas Shelby and also have a passion for Japanese whiskey? Do you have no clue who Thomas Shelby is, but love your Japanese whiskey? Or do you not know either about Thomas Shelby or Japanese whiskey, but just want to meet one of the greatest guys in the spirit industry? Then this episode is for you. James Bowker is a proud Brummy. Uh, that's someone from Birmingham, England, by the way. Just like Thomas Shelby and Peaky Blinders, one of my favorite programs. His early love of Japanese whiskey grew into a role as the first House of Suntory Global Advocacy Manager. I met James many years ago when he was one of the top 10 finalists for the Diageo World Class Competition in the UK and have just now finally had him on the program. It was kismet as I was about to step on a plane to Japan. He taught me so much, which made the experience a billion times better. Even if you aren't headed to Japan, his knowledge is invaluable. But before we begin, you can always watch this episode on YouTube, plus all the other Lush Life episodes, as well as a whole lot more. Just head to youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. That's youtube.com slash Lush Life Manual. Now, let's join James. I'm, I'm super excited. And thank you for hosting. It's, I'm really, really looking forward to it. It's been ages since I've done a podcast and it's lovely to do it with someone I like so much. So it makes it all the more fun. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And um, yes, I hear you're going to New York. So this is the perfect time. I was going to have you go through your whole history, but then I thought people can read about it online. They can listen to it on some of your other podcasts that you've done. And I think that listening to some of the other things that you've um, spoken about, two things came to mind. And I think hopefully those two kind of concepts will join into one. And I've heard you talk about being the perfect host, how to be the perfect host. And I'd love you to talk about that as well. Before, we're going to do an introduction, but these are just a couple of the things. And then also how you got to fall in love with Japan and work for a Japanese company and then talk about that Japanese company a little bit. Cool. So before we do all of that, first, why don't you tell everyone who you are and just a little bit about your history? So, yeah, I work for the House of Suntory, so I'm the global advocacy manager. But it means I have the incredible privilege of working with one of my favorites spirits companies in a culture that I absolutely adore and explain to people around the world what makes it unique, what makes it different, what makes it exciting. So really, I'm responsible for storytelling and education for the House of Suntory. Fabulous. Now, it wouldn't be Lush Life if we didn't go a little bit all the way back. Can you tell me where you were born and kind of your just early bits of, of drinking, I guess, like cocktails at home? Did you like any of that? Your first jobs working with drinks? Of course, yes. Yeah. So I, I grew up in a small village in the countryside in Milton Keynes, which is not the most glamorous of places. But you, anyone listening will be able to tell by my accent that I'm British. 
Um, and so just picture your typical English countryside village. There wasn't much in terms of a drinking culture there besides the local pub. And actually, when I was a child, the local pub closed. So we had to walk a full mile through country roads before you would eventually find uh, the nearest pub. And so when I was about 15 years old, I, I had the chance to go and start working in that local pub. And just as soon as I got there, I fell in love with the atmosphere of communal drinking spaces. There's something really special about a community space where people come together. They, they come from all different walks of life. They share stories. They help each other get through hard times, but they also have fun, have a really good time together. And so I'd grown up in a, in a church going family and I'd fallen out of love eventually with, with the world of, of the church, but the pub felt similar to that in a way. It felt like it was just a place that people had that sense of community and coming together. And so, yeah, I worked initially, of course, doing kind of glass collection and, and working in the kitchen, chopping salads and so on and so forth. Always, though, with an eye towards towards the bar. And I basically, since since childhood, had this reputation in my family of being the, the slightly snooty one when it comes to flavour. So when my we had you know, Christmases and all that sort of thing. Everyone would have all the different sweets that you would get in your stockings. And most of my family would be really falling in love with traditional Capri dairy milk chocolates. And my mum would always get something a little bit nicer, like a Lindor or Gillian or something like that. And I was always the one that would be trying to sneak chocolates from my mum because they were the, the better tasting ones. And that basically played through into as soon as I got into working in this hospitality environment was I knew that I just, I just had this weird obsession with flavour. There was something about the taste of things that excited me, that really inspired me. And so I moved quickly as possible away from the bar backing and away from the glass washing and towards where I could taste things. And as we had a fancy pants Michelin chef, that wasn't going to be the kitchen. And what it meant was I got behind the bar super early on. Did you ever cook at home? Did you ever explore flavors that way? Oh, of course. I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with cooking. It's To be honest, the main way that I'll relax is, is cooking myself fresh food. I've never really been a health conscious person but i am aware of like just how bad for you stuff you get from from the shops is and so it's it's always something that me and my partner will do is just host friends every night we can bring people in because it's horrible cooking for yourself and just get a group together and cook awesome foods that's that's something i'm doing regularly and did that start as a child yeah I mean, when you, you, you were already always in the kitchen. Oh, yeah, I did some, and I did some weird things when I was a kid. Like, I was always very experimental. I remember one day I wanted to cook something, and well, for whatever reason, for a good reason, I wasn't able to cook a dinner. So I was like, okay, well, I'll make some sort of pudding. And the only thing we had was, like, tangerines and digestive biscuits, which are very plain, bland biscuits. And I, like, caramelized off these digestive biscuits and tried to make, like, a, like a syrup with the tangerines. And to be honest, I remember it tasting really not very good, but... It's a, it's a core memory of being like, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'll just find what I've got and I'll make something with it. So yeah, that was that was how things started. And then I basically, as soon as I got behind the bar in this, this pub, I learned that actually there was this side of things that was fun in terms of how we just serve people. So serving pies and having a good time with people. There was the other side that we didn't really do at the pub, which is cocktails. And we'd, I'd heard that a lot of the younger people in the community, the village that I was, I was living in, were going into town because that was where they could have mixed drinks and cocktails. And I thought, well, this is a shame. And these things sound really tasty, really good fun. So I just started, I got a cocktail book. I think it was like Difford's Guide or some, you know, some sort of general cocktail book. I just started mixing things. And I remember the first one I tried was, was an old fashioned. I made it with, I can't remember what bourbon it was. And I had a sip and it was awful. 
Absolutely horrible. Oh. <laughs> and I think the reason for that was I was I was too young to really understand stirred right. down cocktails. They weren't something my palate was prepared for. You know, I was still only just turned 18 at this stage. And so I just started experimenting more and more and eventually got the luck that the, the landlord just trusted me. And we had this chalkboard uh, right opposite the bar. And I just every week put on a few cocktails that I was experimenting with. And mostly it was tiki drinks because that was the fruity fun side of cocktails that people in the, a random village in the English countryside could get behind. Of course, who doesn't like a mojito and who doesn't like, you know, pina colada. So I understand that. Right, exactly. Now, while you were doing this, I understand from knowing you that you were also studying at the same time. Was this always working at the bar just for fun? And, you know, you thought, oh, it's just a little thing on the side because I'm studying? Basically, it was just a need for cash. You know, I, I growing up in the countryside, I always wanted to be in town to visit you know, girlfriends or see my mates or whatever it would be. And the, the bus service was pretty poor. I didn't want to cycle all the time. So I needed taxi money. That's why I started off in the pub. As soon as I went to university, I moved from the countryside to the second largest city in the UK, which is called Birmingham, and just basically knew that I'd need to make money. My, I don't come from a family that just throws cash every month at you, so you just have the life of luxury while you're at university. It's like, no, no, you work hard, you, you, you find your way. And so I found a great bar. I talked to friends during the first couple of weeks of university, asked where the best place was in town, went to visit fell in love. It was a typical, that kind of era of 2000, early, you know, 2010, 2011 sort of time. It was all speakeasies, Victoriana, et cetera, et cetera. Cute little place called the Jekyll and Hyde, which just that at that period was winning, I think the best gin bar in Europe or something like that. Certainly best cocktail menu in the UK. I remember us winning. And I was like, okay, this seems like a place to learn. And just very luckily, they they offered me a job. I, I went in there, cocky as anything, uh, kind of perched at the bar. I was like, this is exciting. This is cool. Uh, can I do this? I had no real idea what I was getting into. But something in the the passion that I was obviously showing get, gave me an interview. And yeah, got through. I remember the, the hardest question he gave me, a guy called Carl Hawkins, who to this day is someone that I've got so much respect for. And he just sat me down. He's like, right, well, you don't know very much about cocktails. Um, You've not got much experience. You're very young. Uh, You also look much younger than you are. So it's going to be an interesting one. But if I gave you this really difficult round, what order would you make those drinks in so they all came out at the same time? And from what I understand, some of the other interviewees had never worked in a pub and understood how long it would take you to pour a Guinness or go and change the barrel downstairs. And so that one question of being able to work out what is the right order to give great service got me in the door. When you interview people, do you whip out that question? Yeah, quite often. I've, I've, I, the, the hardest interviews I've ever done have always stuck with me because I think if you can prove yourself that you can, you can hold your, hold your cool, hold your head in an interview situation when you're being thrown difficult questions, that's perfect preparation for when you're, you know, four deep behind the bar and there's that person propping up the counter and asking you something difficult about cocktail history. If you can stay cool and, and provide a good answer there, you're grand. Your grand, yes. Again, I bring back your studies oh, yeah. because you didn't you didn't just do a bachelor of BA, a bachelor of arts, an MA, but you were going for a PhD. I mean, that's serious. That's like that's you know wanting to be a professor. Was this something that in your family you had to go to university, you had to prove something? This is what you you know were going to do, and you had this other side of you that was tugging. I mean, what was that war like inside of you? How did you decide? Which side to take, you know, the angel or the devil? It's a good question. I think from 
from all of my life, I'd kind of been not goody two shoes per se, but I'd always been someone that was like good at school. Um, you know, I'd have fun and mess around, but I was always like kind of on track to, to have a good life. Not because my family came from anything special, but just because I was getting great grades and I got along with everyone. And so it allows you to progress through various, you know, academic bits. And so I'd done really well in my GCSEs, which is like the exams you do when you're 16. I got some crazy high scores, got very cocky and then didn't work at all for my A-levels, which is the kind of, I think it's like equivalent to the SATs or something in the States. And so basically didn't do so well in those, those exams, went to university and just was like, my big part of my identity is built on being the smartest guy in the room. Like that's, that's who I am. And I, I failed at my last exams. I need to do well. I need to prove to myself that I've got something to offer here. And I, I really felt this pressure because going from a small country town to this huge, big city, I'm suddenly introduced to people from all walks of life that I'd never met before. There's a couple of people, you know, the guy called Bryn Goff, a woman called Amanda Morgan that were just so smart that I, I'd never met people this intelligent before. And I was like, oh, I need to be able to compete with these people. This is, this is so tricky. And so I just put all of my effort into having a great time, of course, but doing well, proving to myself that that blip of my sixth form experience wasn't going to mark my life in any way. And so I got really good results. I was really lucky to get the highest score in my in my year at my undergrad and then got the funding to my uh, master's. Again, got the highest score. I was like, okay, clearly there's something in this. I'm really enjoying it. I'm getting good results. My professors love me. Maybe this, maybe this should be my career. And so at that stage, I was I was kind of split because I was loving what I was doing in hospitality. By that stage, I'd been headhunted away from the, the, the gin bar I'd mentioned earlier, Jekyll and Hyde, and moved over to a posh, fancy pants, you know, luxury hotel bar. And that place was amazing. That The Edge Baston had, you know, we had nearly a thousand spirits on the back bar. We had this huge old school cocktail menu with like 80, 80 drinks in there, plus 100 odd classics just a, a wild, wild place to really upskill myself. We had some incredible mentors there from the owner, a guy called Darren, who'd worked in New Orleans through to a, a bunch of other incredible, incredible bartenders. And I was like, oh, I'm obsessed with this academia and what I'm learning about the world. I had this real sense of caring about justice in the world and, and wanting to work in that space of how we take academic philosophy and politics and apply it to the real world. But at the same time being in this state of discovery, I suppose, this, this realization there's a whole world that I'd never been aware of. I'd never experienced luxury until working in that place. I'd never experienced, you know, any country outside of Britain and France. And suddenly I'm exposed to all of this stuff. And like, where, where do I go from here? I decided after my master's degree that I would commit a year to hospitality. And then just as I started that year of, of commitment, I got this kind of bar management role. It was all going really, really well. Suddenly, the university that I used to be at came to me and they're like, well, we've actually decided that we would like to entirely fund you to do a PhD, which is a super rare, I, was, I mean, it's just such a privilege to get given an offer like that. And it was not just funding the studies, it would offer a salary alongside that. And that just so rarely comes up. That I was like, well, that's not something you can turn down because it was sponsored by an organization that I had huge respect for called the Tax Justice Network. And all of my side of me that cared about changing the world and wanting to give back in some way was just suddenly turned on by the, the possibility because what the tax justice network do is they look at corporate tax avoidance and they try and provide 
well, all sorts of things. But in, in this instance, to try and provide research that helps to come up with new policy or, or, or question the way that things are currently policed to make sure that we do get more tax income into countries and these corporations can't just avoid huge amounts of tax. I was like, okay, that's a cool opportunity. And even though you told yourself you were going to commit to bartending for a year, even though you told yourself you wanted to travel and do all of that, this doesn't come up very often right. and very often rather. So I decided to to try it. And for the, the final year of my undergrad, the whole of my master's, the first year of my PhD, I was doing those studies full time and working full time in, in an award winning cocktail bar and, you know, entering competitions and having some success myself. And it was one of the hardest things that I've ever done. And I just had this, this is 2015, I think, or 2000, 2000 it must have been 2016 Brexit. I had this awful year where I think it was the year my grandfather died. I was like completely in love with someone who like broke it off in a way that felt really painful. And Brexit happened and Brexit hit me really hard because I was teaching undergraduate students as part of my PhD, international politics, economics and philosophy. And these kids were mostly European students, not British students. And when it was, I remember so clearly, I didn't believe it was going to happen. I was, you know, campaigning, door knocking, trying to stop Brexit from happening. Woke up, turn on my phone. First thing you see, it's gone through, fine. Go to class. And I had four students in one day break down in tears uh, during seminars. And it just broke my heart, to be honest. I felt completely alienated from, you know, some people in my family that had voted a certain way, friends of mine, and just the country in general. I felt like my identity as being a, a European young man wasn't wasn't something that was respected. I felt that I was living in a country that was going a, going a way that wasn't the way that I wanted to see it go. And then the, all this other heartbreak had happened in my personal life. And I was like, you know what? I just need a break. I need to... You're like, screw it. I'm getting behind the bar and making a drink. Damn it. I need a drink. Flip, flip the desk. Say academia is not the thing for me. I'd also just realized that like, I, I was never going to be the guy that sits in an ivory tower somewhere researching some minutiae of some policy. I had a taste of what real people were like working in hospitality. And so I just was like, right, I'm leaving. I, put, I posted on Facebook. Does anyone have a job in Asia? And a friend of mine came, came back to me and she was like, James, you've always loved Japanese whiskey. You're obsessed with Japanese bartending. Why are you saying Asia? You should say more specifically that you want to work in Japan. I was like, well, I, I don't know anyone in Japan. And everyone knows how this industry works. If you have a connection, you're, you're great, right? You're in. If you don't know anyone, it's so hard to, to get in the door. And so she's like, okay, leave it with me. I'll see if I can connect you with anyone. And I didn't really think of anything else of it. And literally the very next day, I had a, an unknown number call my phone pick up hello hello and uh, say ah, is this is this james yep this is james how can i help so have you heard of bar high five in tokyo yep i've, I've of course i've heard of it it's a place that i <laughs> revere and uh, so, ah so this is this is bueno i i own bar high five i hear you're you're very good do you want to come and work for me i was like oh okay you're like well, yeah i'm on the next plane <laughs> when, when do you need me he's when when can you be there and i remember opening up my laptop and going right yeah two weeks so that same exact day, I quit my PhD. I talked to my housemate and got out of my, my rental agreement. I quit my job and booked my flights all in one day. And two weeks later, I was in Tokyo. So that was, that was the next stage. Just to, to uh, just unpack that or go back a little bit, you said you always had a love of Japanese whiskey. Yeah. Where did that love come from and why Japan right away? 
So, I mean, it wasn't because of Japan initially. It was because of that obsession with flavor. So I remember that that first pub that I worked in that I mentioned earlier, we had this incredibly posh restaurant as part of the pub. And it was really a Jekyll and Hyde experience. I worked in a bar called the Jekyll and Hyde. But even before that, the pub, the navigation was, was, was Jekyll and Hyde because it had this kind of rough and ready English pub. And next to it, as part of the same business, was a restaurant that was aspiring for its uh, first Michelin star. And as a consequence, we had an amazing wine list and an amazing spirits collection. And the landlord, a guy called Duncan, was super friendly and super supportive of my passion. And so he just let me taste whatever wine's like. As long as you sell a dram, you can have a dram. So I got to taste dozens of whiskies from all over the world. And the first one that I can honestly say I enjoyed was a random bottle of Yamazaki 10-year-old that he just happened to have. And I have no idea where he got it from because it's not something that was super common in Milton Keynes. Um, but I just remember tasting it being like, ah, okay, it's possible for a spirit at 40% ABV to be palatable, which at 18 years old, I hadn't really experienced that before. I'd always found these spirits too much. I'm just going to interrupt you one sec. Do you think it was because you... I'm sure it was because we all know that it's fabulous and it tastes fantastic. But do you also think that it's because you were meant to taste that at that time, as in you had tried that first old fashioned and it wasn't very good. You weren't used to it. And your palate just became a little bit more in tune to the possibility of, you know, whiskeys or bourbon. And then all of a sudden, boom, this was the eureka moment of, yes, this is this is what it's meant to be. Right. I think, I think there's, there's something in that. I mean, I've, I've never been one to believe in like any form of fate or, or kind of meaning in anything, but I definitely had prepared my palate because I was tasting all sorts of spirits, rums, gins, whiskeys, cognacs every day. And I think I was just crying out to taste something where I was like, A, there's good flavor in here. B, there's complexity in here. And I'd actually experienced both of those things where I'd taken a sip of whiskey and been like, oh, I can see that it's good. I can see that it's complex, but I hadn't liked it. And so what I was crying out for was something that ticked the you know, good flavor complexity boxes and felt palatable. And something that is, is true for, for Japanese whiskeys is that generally speaking, they are softer. They're a bit more, a bit more delicate, frankly, than whiskeys you find in Scotland. And so I think when I tasted that, I was like, ah, as you say, Eureka. I've got flavor, yeah. I've got complexity, but also I can sip this and not put a face. And so that was that was that first that first inkling that this was a category that I would fall in love with. And it just it grew from there, to be honest. All right. So now you're off. You're on that airplane to Japan. Mm. What was that first experience working? Amazing, terrifying and uh, intense. Was it what you thought it was going to be? I mean, did you have any ideas beforehand? This is the way I think it's going to be. And then you were like, whoa, no, no, no. And um, so firstly, or yet yeah, I mean, there, there were some things that were exactly as I'd expected and some things that were very different. So I, I'd, I'd obviously, you know, coming from by that point, you know, I'd been lucky to you know, win some cocktail competitions, have some various awards that I'd won privately and the bar had won for various things, menus, cocktails, whatever. And so I'd, I was coming at it being like, you know, I've competed in the Diageo UK finals three years running, blah, blah, blah. I, I know what I'm doing. They'll let me make drinks. And the reality is you don't really make many drinks when you're doing an apprenticeship uh, out in Japan. It's more about watching, learning, understanding the culture. So I definitely thought I would get more practical experience of making cocktails. I didn't get that. But what I did get was just a masterclass in how to host people, how to look after people, and the, the little details of balance, of harmony, of, of hospitality that in the, in, I think in a lot of Western bars, we're, we're so busy all the time. And we're so focused on the next cocktail menu, the next competition, the next whatever, that 
those little nitty bitty details, you just don't have the mental headspace to, to, to think about. And so I really got such an incredible mentorship on, on the detail side of things out in Japan. And is there one or two that you can talk about that, again, were kind of eureka moments where you were like, oh, you, you just like, you know, your back tingled or that spine moment like, oh, my God, I've been doing it wrong the whole way or all of the why isn't the West doing it this way? Was there one or two that you could you know, discuss? Yeah, there's some great, some great, some great examples, some great memories. One of my favorite memories is not so much related to the specifics of being in a bar, but rather about, and I think it is a key thing of hosting, which is about making people feel comfortable. And it's something I, I encounter with as a brand ambassador all the time is, you know, you meet strangers and they might have one expectation or another expectation, but people are often more nervous than we realize. And so, certainly when I first met Wayno, I was I was really, I was terrified, to be honest, because I'd never met him before. I was the first apprentice he'd ever taken on without having met them in person. So there was a huge response, felt like a huge responsibility to do a good job, give a good impression of myself, but also of, of the Birmingham bar community. I was very proud of being a member of the Birmingham bar community and still am. And so I'd seen all these videos. I'd grown up in my career watching him bartend and he, he's always dressed impeccably, you know, beautiful, beautiful suit, tailored shirt braces, tie, the most incredible Elvis Presley hairdo you've ever seen. And I was like, okay, I'll go to Japan, new culture. I know business cards are a big deal. So I'll get business cards printed. Brilliant. And it's like, you know, it's a long flight to Japan. And so I was wearing just casual clothes, get to the airport. It's really hot. It's like 25, 30 degrees out there, which for, for a Brit is, is warm weather yeah. and humid. So I was like, no matter. I'm going to put on a three-piece suit. So I go to just the, you know, I hadn't flown business. I was, you know, I was, I was young. I was paying my own way. And so I went to the, the loose, changed into this fancy suit, did my hair, you know, hair gel, get the kind of 1920s look that we had in the, the hotel that I worked in. So I was really smart, really precise. And when he was picking me up, he said, oh, I'm going to be 10 minutes late. So go and, go and stand on the terrace and I'll meet you there. I'm standing on the terrace in the blazing sunlight, sweating cobs, you know, really nervous, hearts beating. And I just hear this, this like <laughs> sound and it's the sound of flip-flops. I'm like, blimey neck, who's wearing flip-flops in the airport? That's interesting. I turn around and Wayno turns up in cargo shirt, shorts and a Hawaiian shirt. Looking at me like, why are you in a suit? We're at the airport, you numpty. And immediately all of that stress just flowed out of me. I was like, okay, turns out these, you know, these pinnacle bartenders that we all look up to, they're, they're normal people. They're fun people. They have a sense of humor. And so that, that was a moment where I kind of re- immediately reflected, like, it doesn't matter how far you get in this industry, just being human, being yourself and, and being relaxed and humble, that can completely change how someone feels entering the industry. They can feel so much more welcome. So that was that was the first <laughs> the first moment as soon as I landed. How about guests? As you say, you're a proud member of the Birmingham bar community. What was it like serving Japanese guests as opposed to only tourists? You know, locals and mm. tourists. Was there a difference? Huge difference. And actually, we we weren't really as Western apprentices allowed to engage too much with the Japanese guests unless you were introduced by Wayno because he wants to tell somebody about you or, oh. or whatever else. And um, so the hospitality, it's called Omitanashi in Japan, the, this, this kind of sense of hospitality they have. And a big part of it is about truly in a really heartfelt, deep seated way, understanding the needs of your guests and genuinely, authentically wanting to not only meet those needs, but 
A, exceed them, and B, exceed them before they realize they're even there. And a big part of people feeling happy in a bar is, is truly feeling relaxed and at ease. And to feel relaxed and at ease, you need to have someone talking your language, communicating with you in a way you understand. And so generally speaking, the Japanese guests were handled by the Japanese staff and the Western or tourist guests were, were looked after by those of us that weren't from Japan. So the main difference that I noticed besides not being allowed to talk to them was there was a lot more of a, almost a sense of ceremony between the guest and the bartender. There was, there was more of a sense of like, we're coming at this as equals. I'm very privileged as a guest to be in your wonderful, famous, incredible bar. And they'll, you know, people would sit very straight back, great posture, look the bartender in the eye, really listen carefully to everything they were saying and engage with it as if they were talking to someone that they really deeply respected. And it was fascinating, really showing the stark contrast of how guests sometimes treat people in Western bars because the tourists would initially do the same. They'd come in and be a bit boisterous and you'd see this moment where they went, ah, okay, this is not the right way to behave. There's clearly, yeah. there's clearly a different way to behave here. And it was fascinating to watch this sense of, the discovery of respect for the, the cocktail craft, as people might call it, unfolding in the minds of guests. That was really, really cool to see. How long were you there? So just, just one season. I didn't do the whole year or anything like that. I had, I was, I was working unpaid at the time when it was incredibly supportive with, you know, helping out with accommodation and, and everything else. But at that time I was going out there with my savings and just. <gasps> putting myself through it. So came back and I had to come back to celebrate my, my sister's graduation as well. So not as long as I would have liked, but I ran out of money and I had to come home. Oh, that's too bad. That's too bad. Because I was, I was wondering how long it would take, and maybe you did this in your season, to be deemed good enough, or I, I, you know, I don't know if that's the right terminology, but worthy enough to move from a back bar to the front of the bar because you see you know i've seen the movie jiro making sushi and his son has been making rice for like 20 years and is never allowed at the front yeah uh, did you feel that you were going to be able to make some drinks while you were there all right good I'm yeah, glad I mean, you're, you're not wayner was an amazing mentor and you're very uh -huh. quickly, there's nowhere to hide. It's not It's not like right. a restaurant where you've got a kitchen hidden out the back. So everyone's always on display. And, you know, you do have to learn very quickly the right way to hold yourself, to behave. I had this incredible privilege of coming from that luxury hotel background. So knowing yeah. just general etiquette points. And both of the mentors I'd had in that hotel were obsessed with Japanese bar culture. So there was a guy called Rob Woods and there was another guy called Mate Shatlosh. Both of them trained me impeccably. Like just, I'm so grateful for those two guys for the things they taught me. So I went into High Five with an understanding of the culture in general and how to act as a bartender in that culture. And so I was very lucky to quite quickly progress from just being allowed to polish glasses and clear, clear glasses, which is where you start to being allowed to talk to guests, explain the menus. There's, there's no written menu. They've just got like a series of questions they ask you. You have to memorize the questions and, and how to get the right answers out of people. And then there's a special way of notating it. And then you give that kind of notation to the bartender and they create something bespoke. Um, and so I was very quickly within just, just a week to progress from kind of bar backing to being able to do that, which is awesome because many people take months to be, able, be allowed to do that. And then from there, because I was geek about whiskey, by that point I already had, you know, I tasted like 150 Japanese whiskeys before I even arrived. And I tasted another 150 while I was there. 
Reno asked me to start kind of teaching some of his his team about the history and the flavor profiles of some of these whiskies, not, not just Japanese, but Scotch and all sorts. And so I was kind of promoted to being allowed to pour whiskey, which was a big deal. And I remember there was a bartender that I was friends with who'd been there a little bit longer than me. He was looking at me like, that's not fair. How come you're allowed to pour whiskies? I'm not. I was like, just, just luck, basically. I happen to have expertise in that thing and I happen to have good jigger technique because I had that hotel background and those two things got me there and then once you start pouring whiskey guests start going oh is, is this guy is this guy allowed to make drinks or not allowed to make drinks and one or two people the western guests would say would ask me directly are you, are you allowed to make cocktails and say no that's the you know just the master and just carry sand the the head bartender and then one or two of them over the course of the time I was there would would ask oh do you mind if he makes us a drink actually we'd love to see what he does and if a guest asks then they say yes and so there were there are probably like two dozen times or so that I made cocktails in the total time I was there, but it felt very special those those few times. I'm sure. When you came home, did you come home thinking, I've got to find me, a, you know, a Japanese company to work for? This is what I want. This is, you know, I'm pure Japan now. No, not at all. I, I, I came back, you know, uh, even more in love with Japan than I had been when I went out there, but very open to what might come next. I knew I wanted to stay in the industry and I'd had some really interesting chats with a, with a restaurateur in Birmingham who I had a huge amount of respect for. And so as soon as I got back, having had those chats with him beforehand, went and talked to him, got offered a role where I would be basically working alongside him to grow that business. So they, they were at the time just a pop-up restaurant and they were moving to a more permanent premises as well as getting investment to open a second premises that was going to be primarily a cocktail bar. And so, yeah, from there, went to work with him, had this in incredible freedom, this creativity, this opportunity to design my own bar from scratch, literally, you know, come up with the concept for the bar, basically like opening your own bar, but not the pressure of having to open your own bar. So I had, yeah, complete conceptual freedom with him, design the menu entirely however I would want it, to, want it to be, hire my dream team with kind of no real time limit. I had a whole year to repair and get this dream team together. To this day, incredibly proud of that team. So we, yeah, built the venue from scratch. Incredibly proud of it. It was one of the best things I think I've ever done. Sadly, you know, died between, you know, COVID, me moving to London and various other factors, but beautiful, beautiful space. And then it was while I was working there, that I got the phone call about Suntory, you know, a couple of years later. And then, you know, I was just, just like, you know what? I can't turn that down. How often do you get, they'd never had like a full-time House Suntory ambassador before. I was like, right, yeah, I need to do this. This is, this is, this is my, my calling to go and educate people and mentor people, which is my favorite thing to do in the world. Well, when you were working at the Wilderness, yeah. the, the bar in Birmingham, now, did you feel that, you could bring some of the things that you had learned in Japan to your team? Yeah, absolutely. One of the, my favorite things we did was, so we, we opened, we had the Wilderness, which was the fine dining restaurant. And then we opened Nocturnal Animals, which was the, the cocktail right. bar. And we built into that bar, kind of like you have chef's tables in great restaurants. We built in a bartender's table, which was behind the back bar. So you'd, you'd literally walk kind of through the back bar and there was a, crescent moon shaped table with a with a bar station built into it and then so the guests would sit and be observing everything that was going on in the main bar from behind the bartenders they'd really feel like they were in the bar itself while they were seated uh -huh. and that meant that i had this so cool. this opportunity to give a japanese bartending experience where you're directly in front of that bartender they make every single drink bespoke for you and they demonstrate the very finest of techniques with with no rush or no need to kind of do things in a 
shorthand, you know, shortcutted way. So that was the the way in which I brought my experience in Japan to Birmingham was to go, okay, there's things that are great about Japan that I can do here. There are things that Birmingham wants that are more kind of, you know, looking into the mixology world or doing distillation or various other things. So I was able to bring those two worlds, this passion for kind of the molecular world of cocktails that I'd developed before Japan and all the stuff I'd learned in Japan, bring it together with my newfound passion for fine dining and, and, and that world and put it into that bartender's table experience. And that was, that was fantastic. That was great fun. It must have been so satisfying. Oh, it was wonderful. Then Suntory came, knocked yeah. on your door and we were like, yes, I'm back in Japan, Japan. And were you able to carve out the role or did they have very specific things that you had to follow, you know, being the first one? Um, it's a bit of both really. You know, they, they, I wasn't the first brand ambassador that had been employed by the overall company. So there was a McAllen brand ambassador and various other brand ambassadors, but the first working on the house of Suntory. And I had an incredible boss guy called Nick Templey. Um, He'd he'd worked at Diageo before. So he'd had a lot of experience with world-class and a huge team of brand ambassadors. And he just immediately put quite a lot of trust in me. So he's like, look, you do have some KPIs. You know, this is your top 12 accounts. You've got to visit there. You've got to train there, et cetera, et cetera. But, really, we, we're going to give you some freedom. And I remember coming into role, he was like, right, so your first month, you've got two big things to do. The first is we're taking our three most important global customers to Japan. And I need you to like come up with the whole itinerary for the trip and make sure it's the best experience they've ever had. Oh, and secondly, the week after we come back, it's Taste of London. And we've not planned it yet, but we've got like a budget to do something there. You've got a 10 by 10 meter space. Just, just We need you to make the best experience you can do. And I was super lucky that the trip went really well. They loved it because I was able to introduce them to places I'd been when I lived out there and so on. And Taste of London won the Best Stand in Show Award and Best Masterclass in Show Award, the two the two awards at the, at the Taste of London. And so that was my first month. And immediately all of that stress and like, will they tr- believe in me? Will I be able to do a good job? Just dissipated because straight away that all the stakeholders are like, oh, okay, he's all right. He knows what he, he's he, doing. He, He's, he's all right. He'll be good. And so from there, I just had this this freedom. And that was always something I valued is, is working in places where I get an element of trust from my team. Because as with any bartender, I'm, I value my creativity and I love education. So having the freedom to work out the way that was right for me and that was right for Suntory was, oh, was invaluable. I'm so grateful for the support they gave me. Do you feel that the English know a lot about the Japanese Suntory brands or is it a real education process? It's, 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 it's a great question. It's been like the defining thing that's made my career exciting really is that I've, I always use the same metaphor, which is that I've surfed the wave of Japanese whiskey's popularity. So when I started my career, gosh, how old, like 14 years ago now, no one really knew about Japanese whiskey. I didn't know about Japanese whiskey. You'd occasionally see a dusty bottle on the shelf as I did with that Yamazaki 10 back in the day. But it wasn't, a th- you know, everyone would say, no, nah, don't want that. I want scotch, whatever. And then Suntory, Nika, various other companies started to win awards. People started to pay attention. I remember when I was working in that uh, that hotel bar, we had, you know, huge collection. We had one of the biggest collections of Japanese whiskey in Europe at the time. And suddenly, Suntory had won world's best whiskey uh, for the Yamazaki 2013 sherry cask. And guests start coming in and going, oh, that's, that's interesting. What's that? What's, uh, I'll try that, actually. And I was just one of the very few people who knew about this stuff and was able to get interviewed on podcasts like this and various you know, trade publications and you know, newspapers and things just because I was prepared to do it for free, frankly. Uh, so I was able to provide some insights that not everyone could and I wasn't going to charge for it. So I got this kind of 
slow boost or quite quick boost of just being a guy that knew about Japan. And then when it came to the job, it immediately just struck me that people knew a bit, but a lot of it was was false. A lot of it was stuff they'd read on blogs. It wasn't stuff that actually had any grounding in the truth and that we had this huge task to do in terms of just giving good, clear information that had complete truth in its roots. And so I started, I had this cool opportunity or cool challenge set to me where we had this thing called the, the Dojo Masterclass, which had happened in New York, which is where there was an amazing guy called Gardner Dunn, who's the, the, he's the senior brand ambassador in the States. And he had flown out, Wayno, who was my old boss from High Five, he'd flown him out to New York and done an ice carving masterclass called the Dojo Masterclass. Dojo meaning like training ground. And so the, the global guy who was in head of the, the head of the entride called Taki, he said, um, he came to London, he was like, oh, we did this cool thing in New York. I think there's something in it, but we don't, we've got a lot going on in New York. Um, can you just come up with a, a bigger, broader strategy for what Dojo could be? And at the same time, I had Nick, the, the guy that was leading the UK team, come to me and say, James, um, I used to have Diageo World Class um, back in my old job. I want to do something like that here, on this, like something big, something awesome, like, like Diageo World Class, like a cocktail competition. Can you do it? And I immediately said no. I am not doing another cocktail competition. There are so many cocktail competitions out there. I've competed in half of them and everyone's sick to death of doing cocktail comps. And so I was like, well, the US guys did a thing on a masterclass on ice carving. Let's combine these two ideas and let's create something that is just about education, about showing British bartenders all about the truth of Japanese bar culture. And so we built a, a six month program where we would just select the first year was just 10 people. Now I think it's 100 people per year. And um, we just selected a small group of people. We did a series of master classes where we would learn from traditional Japanese crafts. So we did a, a proper tea ceremony with a true tea master in a traditional tea room. We did uh, Ikebana flower arranging, sushi making, you know, all these incredible things. And we'd learn it from proper experts. I wasn't trying to teach people about these things because. I'm not a tea master. I'm not a sushi master. I don't have any authority to talk to them. So we'd learn their craft. And then I would interview them in front of the, the guests about the kind of philosophies, the underlying principles that define how they consider themselves good at their jobs and ask them, which of these things do you think are applicable to the world of bartending? And then we would draw out these kind of key learnings from traditional crafts and think, what does that mean for our jobs? So with my favorite example is always the Ikebana, the flower arranging. I would learn about the concept of ma, which is a Japanese concept similar to minimalism or the importance of negative space or white space in design. And there's a whole, I won't go into it, it's like an hour long presentation. There's a whole yeah. plethora of beautiful stuff that you can learn about the concept of beauty. And so we would take those learnings and then we'd say, well, what does that mean for garnishing? And so we built out this program that was just a series of cool masterclasses about Japanese culture, how it applies to bartending. And then we just basically test ourselves and we'd, we'd pick a classic cocktail per person at the beginning of the program. And every single time we met up, we would get those classic cocktails out and we would take our learnings and we'd refine that drink. Because in Japan, you select one classic cocktail for your signature as a bartender. And your whole career, you're refining and defining the best version of that cocktail. So for Wayno, it's his famous white lady. For Kishi at Star Bar, it's the, it's the sidecar. And so every bartender had that classic drink that they would slowly refine. And by the end of it, you had you know, a group of 10 people who not only were hugely close friends after spending this whole six-month period together, they were proper experts in Japanese culture. They knew our brands back to front. They understood the culture really well. 
And they had this perfect classic that they'd spent months refining. And so that was the core way of educating the bartenders of Britain. And we're now rolling that out. I think we're doing it in, we're aiming to do 10 countries next year. We did five countries this year. Oh my God, I want to do that. That sounds so fabulous. That's such an incredible program. So do you have your signature cocktail? Well, I've done a few now because every year I kind of set myself one to kind of challenge myself as I go through. But while I was out in uh, out in Japan, they got me doing the penicillin because I, you know, oh. the milk and honey was one of the bars I had huge respect for, and it was a favourite cocktail of mine at the time. Um, and being as I was the kind of the token Brit behind the bar, they were like, right, well that uses scotch. That's the one for you. Um, so while I was in Japan, that was the one that I worked on. I've made it with countless different whiskeys over the year. The, one, the, the drink sure. that I make the most regularly now is I've got a, a kind of gentle twist on a boulevardier, which I call the umami So I do that with, with uh, Toki whiskey, equal parts, of course, uh, with, with Campari and some sweet vermouth. I just add half a bar spoon of tomato ponzu. I find sometimes with the Amaro-based drinks that you get these flavor spikes and they can be nice, but I, I I think they do benefit from a little bit of softening around the edges. And so that that ponzu, the tomato ponzu, just softens the bitterness against the intensity of the alcohol and the and the kind of spice notes of the of the vermouth. Oh my god, that sounds so good! I can make it right now. But first, I would just I don't want to talk about lockdown a lot. But what I love that you did, and I I want people to go into your Instagram because they're still on there, is that literally. Hold on, let me look. It was from March twenty sixth. That must have been the first week or the second week of lockdown and it was 2020 that you started to pick a a Japanese concept Mm. and go through it for like 10 or 15 minutes. Did you find that people were really taking these to heart or or responding well to them? Yeah, it was amazing. And I think. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have this global job now had I not had the amazing support of the international bar community of, of listening to what I had to say. There's no real reason people should listen to me. I'm just some random British guy, but, but people came along and it started with a couple of those Instagram videos and I got so many requests to do like a, a deeper dive that I started something called the Dojo Lockdown Lessons. And I ran this every fortnight for like a year and a half had something like, you know, 400 people do it from around the world. And that sounds like, oh, you know, 400 people on the internet, that's nothing. But if I tell you it was a, a five-hour course over over a week, so every day we would meet at the same time, and I'd change up the time of day each, each week that I did it. And uh, we, we would meet up on Zoom, and I would present every day for one hour on a different topic related to Japanese bars, Japanese history. So it was an hour on the full history of Japanese whiskey. And I, I used to do some stuff with, with Nika and I've had a long fascination with the wider, with the wider drinks industry in Japan. So I, I didn't just focus on some tourists. I like, let's just take the brand stuff away. Let's just focus on the true history from every side, hour on an in-depth dive into the history of Japan, an hour on distillation science. And I had a, a friend of mine who's a qualified chemist join the first few so I could learn from them and then just presented on the detailed geeky stuff on pot and column distillation. Then we did a session on um, one exploring all the different brands, one exploring bar culture. And there was, as I say, this five-hour course. And to get just shy of 500 people doing that over a year and a half, it just gave me such confidence that I wasn't just some silly randomer. I actually had something to say. And it just, yeah, that was that was one of the cool moments for me, I think, in this, in this brand ambassador career. I, I just, I know we've spoken for a long time, but there's something that I also brought up at the beginning that I really wanted to touch on was how you feel about being the perfect host. Mm. And I heard in one interview that you did, this was a while back, but you were, you were in your position already. Mm. 
that there were three things that you thought made up a perfect host, which I want you to tell me. And also, if that has changed in the years that you've been doing this job. Right. So I think the three things you're referring to is something I used to use when I was training bartenders. Um, and so, I, you know, I used to do quite a bit of consulting. And, you know, we've talked a bit about the background. There's lots of other things that came uh, during that career. And when I was training teams, this was always a framework that I used to use, which was the, the holy trinity of bartending. And it was a funny one because oftentimes I would go in as a consultant or I would, you know, be hiring new stuff, whatever else. And my reputation was being the cocktail guy, right? And they'd, so they'd be like, oh, teach us this new distillation technique or like how do you use that centrifuge or whatever thing it would be. And I would always start my training saying, right, we're going to get to the flavor stuff. But before we do, let's get the basics down. And so I said, there's three things that matter in, in bars, in cocktail bars specifically, because they're not just going to get drunk, in which case they'd go to like a nightclub. They're not just going for the most complex thing they can get for the price because they'd probably go to a wine bar. And they're not just looking for a sense of community. They'd go to the pub. There's something unique about cocktail bars that people want. And I said, well, three things come at that for me, uh, the Holy Trinity of Barton. The first is like, you must make great drinks, of course. The second is there's got to be some sort of show to it. There's some sort of experience that comes around that. That's the beautiful things about a cocktail bar is you go, not only is the music and the vibe great, but you're watching someone do a thing. It's like it's a performative element to it. But the third and, and most, most important is the art of hospitality, the art of hosting. And the reason you know it's the most important is in these if you take these three things, great drinks, uh, great show and great hospitality, you can mess up the other two and fix it with the hospitality. If you mess up the hospitality, you can't fix it with the two. So if I'm if I make a drink, it's a bit unbalanced. It doesn't matter if, if I've given them a great experience and I'm lovely. I just apologize and I say, no worries. Let me get you something else. And it's fine. Like literally no one remembers that. We've all had bad drinks and forgotten that we had bad drinks. You've got the other one where you might be doing some flair. Uh, you throw a bottle up in the air, smashes everywhere. Hospital, great host. I used to do this all the time. I'd mess up my flair and I'd just do a big old grin, look around the room and then do a huge dramatic theatrical bow. And people would giggle, they'd have a good laugh. Oh, this guy has a sense of humor. He knows he messed up. Ha ha ha. And that actually improves their experience. And that hosting means that you're forgiven for messing up the, the show that they were seeing. But if you're rude and you leave a bad taste in someone's mouth, you're scuppered. Um, and so my, my whole career, I've, I've seen some, there was a woman that I used to work with called Kate. I'd, God, I, I have never seen someone host the way that Kate does. And so very early on, I was like, that's the magic. That's the secret sauce. And so every person I've trained, every job I've been in, giving the very best hospitality has, has been my biggest passion. And do you think that that, not that those three have changed, but do you think the manner in which you are a host has changed now having been in Japan? I think so. I think something I really learned from, from Ueno in Japan and from lots of different bartenders in Japan is, is the sense of you don't have to be diminishing yourself in any way. You don't have to be self, self-deprecating. You can be really kind of proud of, of who you are and what your, your career path is, your, your craftsmanship is, but still doing it a way that's like very, very humble and very much on a, on a kind of equal basis with your guest and very calm as well. It doesn't have to be hectic and, and frantic. Whilst I never think I was thought I was frantic before, I definitely was quite high energy. And I'm, I'm still high energy now to a degree. But I think when I'm when I'm hosting, I try and like do a breathing exercise before I start, calm myself down, because that lends credibility. And it lends a sense of, I guess, gravitas to the way to the way that people perceive you. 
And that means that you end up having that more honest, equal human interaction rather than one of guest and server. Well, that's fabulous. I can't wait to go to Japan now. So why don't you tell me a little bit more about the House of Suntory and some of the brands? Um, so the, the coolest thing for me about the House of Suntory is it is the, the founding house of Japanese whiskey. So Yamazaki was the first ever whiskey distillery in Japan. And the guy that founded it, uh, Shinjiro Tori, he had had a background in, in selling whiskeys and blending. And he'd realized really early on that the palate of Japanese people was a little bit different to the palates of Westerners. So he'd tried selling Western style wines and people have found them too heavy, too intense. And so the style of spirits that he created when he opened Yamazaki, later, you know, Hakushu and various other distilleries was to make a, a style of spirit that was subtle, refined, yet complex. And so anytime you're tasting a Suntory whiskey, and indeed, to be honest, many other Japanese whiskeys, because he was the first guy and people followed, followed suit from what he was doing, you tend to find that sense of subtlety, i.e. there's it's less intense. It's more refined, by which we mean that there's there's no one flavor that super overpowers everything else. It's much more focused on a sense of balance and harmony. And finally, complexity. We always, always aim for the maximum complexity. And I'd always wondered until I first went to Japan how that's actually achieved, because it's, you know, certainly the whiskies are made exactly the same way as they've made in Scotland. So how, how do they do that? And it turns out that there's there's this three kind of pillared structure that we call the, the pillars of Suntory. The first is the idea of wa. Uh, so wa is it means it's actually the original name of Japan, but it, it means harmony. So if you think of things like wagyu beef, Japanese beef. Uh, so gyu being beef, wa being Japanese beef, right? Uh-huh. Washi paper, which is the the paper we use to make our labels. Yeah, yeah. So wa is about the being, being being inspired by the the nature and harmony of Japan and the, the harmony with between Japanese people and Japanese nature. So that really comes through in the the, the terroir. So in in Hakushu, for example, there's really interesting natural yeasts in the air and just the the, the general microculture of of Japan. Bio, yeah, I'm not very good at the, the science side of things, but like something about the location of the Hakushu in in, in the forest, the high altitude gives a unique profile through fermentation and through aging. And so trying to reflect those natural influences in the spirits is, is a key part. And that's the wa element. The second is, is the idea of monozakuri, which is a, a craftsmanship approach in Japan. And for us, that means simultaneously respecting tradition and keeping things as traditional as possible, whilst also looking at innovation. And the way that's largely been done is too many things I could talk about in this interview, but the key thing is a concept of tsukirawaki. It's very hard, very hard Japanese word. But tsukirawaki means producing lots of different styles of whiskey in that one location by changing up the production methods. So we'll use different varieties of yeast, which create different flavors. We'll use different types of peach, which create different aromas or different barley strains. The most important one, arguably, is the still shapes. We've got 16 unique still shapes at both Yamazaki and Hakushu. And those create, again, different profiles, six different types of cask we use. And it's not for finishing, it's aged in that cask throughout its life. And so you get much more intensity of, of, of that of that flavor. And so in any of our distilleries, you're producing dozens of flavor profiles, dozens of different styles. And then the blenders will take all those styles and bring them together in something that is more subtle, refined and complex. And so that's the kind of, with the whiskies at least, that's the, the monozakuri elements. And the final part is Omitanashi giving great experiences because not everyone comes to Japan. So we're wanting to give people a taste of Japan in every sip they have. But also when they meet people like me, brand ambassadors, when they meet uh, any of our teams, come to our events, giving people an authentic experience of Japan. Because we, I say we're the first. We want to represent Japan well. 
Sun Tory, Tory is the family name. Sun is the land of the rising sun. It's come first and foremost for us as being truly Japanese. And it's about giving a true experience of Japan, making sure that the details of what is it like to be in Japan are spot on, that the, the incense you're burning is a real Japanese incense, that when you arrive, you get the Oshibori hand towel that reminds you of being in Japan. You've got, you don't have to like put your handbag on the table next to you because in Japan, that's not what you do. There's a little handbag stand that they come, they come and give you and you put your handbag on the handbag stand. All of those little elements of, of hospitality that you experience in Japan coming through in the way we activate and giving people a true experience of what makes us Suntory, which is well, that respect for Japanese nature, that craftsmanship, that monozakuri, and finally, that omotenashi, like really understanding, experiencing the true side of Japanese culture. You know, I, that sounds amazing, the distillery with all those different stills. It's amazing how they've taken the whiskey expertise and played it through with other spirits. So you've got Roku Gin and, and Haku Vodka now, you know, making, making gin since the 1930s, vodka since the 1950s. Um, and throughout that, they've always been, I say, respecting tradition, but trying to find innovative ways to make it better. And that concept of making lots of different styles to produce a better product. It plays through even in those. So in, in, in Roku, normally you'd have a gin still. You'd take your botanicals, you'd put them all in together, dried botanicals normally, mm. distill them, that's your gin made. At Roku, they're like, well, uh, you know, actually it turns out that fresh ingredients taste better than dried ingredients. So we're only going to distill fresh ingredients. We're only going to distill them in the peak of their season. And not only that, different shaped stills are better for different fresh botanicals. So we're going to have four different types of pot still, uh, and we're going to distill them depending on which pot still brings out the best flavors from that botanical. With Haku, they've got rice, but they've gone, well, you know, the problem with column stills, they can strip a lot of flavor out. So we use two different types of column still. This type of column still creates a really clean type. This one creates a really full bodied flavor. So we'll do both and then we'll blend them to get the best flavor. And so that constant approach of going, we're going to do it the most traditional way but we're also going to give ourselves the opportunity to create the perfect end product. And that means doing lots of different things, focusing on the details and then bringing those different styles together through, through the art of blending to create that perfect, subtle, refined, yet complex spirit. You know, I thought going to Japan, I feel you discussing how the, how everything is made, that it's going to be kind of sensational, as in using all my senses. I never thought about that before. And now when I take a sip, I sound like a commercial really, but when I take a sip now, it, it will be in a totally different way than I would have had you not told me that. I hope so. So you, you're yeah. going to have the best time. I can't wait. It's like, I got to go and try something right now. No. <laughs> so thank you. That, that was so great. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Um, I, I always finish by asking two questions and one is, I'm going to start with the top tips for the home bartender, because we have a lot of home bartenders that listen to the show. And maybe it's something that's, well, very Jamesy, also very Japanesey, or if you have a few of them. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I, as with everyone, I have a thousand and one tips for, for home bartenders. But I think the number one thing for me would be to trust your own instincts when it comes to flavor. So you can train your palate. That is, of course, you can train yourself to enjoy the, you know, quote unquote, correct balance when it's like the right amount of sweet and sour. If you prefer it more sour than the cocktail recipes you're finding, or you prefer it sweeter than the cocktail recipes you're finding, that's fine. Like pursue the things that you enjoy uh, would be the number one tip. And the other side that's more practical is keeping things cold really helps. So that means put as much ice in, in the glass as you can, get 
get larger ice blocks if you can. They don't necessarily have to be the, the huge ones that you fill up your entire glass. But the difference between one that's one inch across versus an inch and a half, two inches across is, is quite huge. So um, keeping things cold, glassware in the fridge, even if it's only ideally the freezer, even if, you, if you've got space, even if it's only for a minute before you serve it, it just takes the, the kind of ambient heat out of that glass and means that your cocktail will stay perfect for a little bit longer. So those are two small tips. Fabulous. Now, last question. If you could be anywhere drinking anything, where would that be and what would you be drinking? Um, well, given that we've talked a lot about Japan, let's do a bar in Japan. I, I, have, I have so many bars that I adore. But one one that stands out for me is a, a bar called... Oh, this is one of those, like, do you want to give away your secrets? This place is not really a secret bar, but it's one that's less well-known by the bar community. It's one called Grandfather's uh, in Shibuya. You should definitely go while you're out there. And it's, if not the original, it's one of the original vinyl bars out in Tokyo. Uh And it's underground. It's quite tricky to find because the sign is like, the sign that says grandfathers is not particularly easy to read. So it's easy to to walk past it. But it's it's got this quite dark, quite sexy, but very relaxed decor to it. And then the, the, the staff are super... Super, just super friendly, but in a way that kind of leaves you to have your own space. So you just sit down, you order, I, I have, you, you generally order a whole bottle. It's a bottle keep system. So you get a bottle of, you know, Kakabin is what I normally get. And that sits on your table. They bring you this really old school kind of Victorian China bowl full of blocks of ice and a pair of tongs and then just soda waters when you need them. And you can either sip it neat put a rock in it or as I tend to drink it as a highball and you just sit and just list like the guy curates the most incredible selection of music and it's obviously on the most amazing hi-fi system beautiful well-preserved vinyl and just just creates this wonderful wonderful atmosphere and if he likes you you can request songs so it ticks a lot of boxes thank you so much for sharing that I know sometimes it's really hard to give away your secrets, so that I really appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been so amazing. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, and it's, uh, sorry it's taken so long, but it's so good to finally have a chance, chance to chat properly. As I said, some things are meant to take a long time, and I think it was the perfect timing. Amazing. Let me know anywhere you need in Japan. I'm happy to share recommendations. Uh, thank you so much. You know, you've just said that out to the world, so you may be getting a lot of Instagram. Well, that's fine. I'm easy to find. <laughs> All right, dear. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. I want to thank James for joining me on the program finally. Needless to say, our Cocktail of the Week has a theme, and that theme is Japan, with some raspberries added in for good measure. The Cocktail of the Week is the Kyoto Club, using a house of Suntory spirit that's not a whiskey. First, take a rocks glass and fill it with ice. Then add all of these ingredients to a shaker. 50 mils of Suntory Roku Gin. 25 mils of chilled green tea. 25 mils of lemon juice. And then you'll need some raspberry syrup. If you can't find it already made, then you can make a simple syrup with sugar and raspberries and water. So all you have to do is take a half a cup or a quarter cup sugar and a half a cup of water, plus a quarter cup of fresh raspberries. Put them all into a pot over low heat, dissolve the sugar, and there you have raspberry syrup. You can then use a sieve to take out the seeds, or you can just leave them in. So back to the recipe. You'll need 15 mils of that raspberry syrup added to the shaker. 
Then add ice to all of it. Then shake, shake, shake for about 15 seconds. After that, strain it into your rocks glass. Add ice if you need more. You'll find this recipe, more gin cocktail recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll definitely find some of the ingredients in my shop. So, back to my travels and down to some work. Except for one short weekend, back to Venice. <laughs> if you live for Lush Life, then make sure you head out to the bars you love and order a drink. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo, Terra, and Simpler Media Productions. Which leads me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. Next up, I'm taking you to Venice to see how it all went down at Venice Cocktail Week this year. Until that time, bottoms up.